0: Welcome to the fifth year of the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. Our first episode for 2017 is called USA Today. And to introduce our guests, here's your host, Sally Warhaft.
1: I'm uh, so excited to be back, and I'm uh, particularly thrilled about this evening's lineup. Uh, we promised you last year at the last Fifth Estate that we would have something very special for you to try and explain what has gone on in the United States um, within the first 100 days of Donald Trump's presidency. It is day 39. (laughs) There's 1,421 to go in the first term if it uh, goes to length, which uh, I suspect it will. Uh, So there's uh, much to discuss and joining us are two people who are really, uh, well, they really can help us to understand what happened, what's going on now and what we might look forward to in the next 1400 and... 21 days. <laughs> Thomas Frank is a former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's and founding editor of The Baffler. He's a best-selling author of books including Pity the Billionaire, The Wrecking Crew, and the very influential What's the Matter with Kansas. His latest book, um, which was written and published, I think, months before the election, Um is a, a really devastating uh, critique of the Democrats. And uh, obviously, they did not read it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't know, maybe Donald Trump did. Yeah, well,
0: there's uh, reason to, to think he did. Yeah, yeah
1: OK, all right. We'll talk we'll, about that. We will talk about that. Yeah. Uh, so it's called uh, Listen, Liberal, whatever happened to the party of the people, and uh, he lives outside Washington DC, which I guess is what everyone wants to say now, isn't it? Cynthia Schneider Schneider is Distinguished Professor in the Practice of Diplomacy at Georgetown University. She teaches full-time there, and her focus is on cultural diplomacy, particularly in the Muslim world. Uh, she's done so many things uh, on her CV, the Brookings Institution, all sorts of places. She was uh, the US ambassador to the Netherlands from 98 to 2001, so that would have been President Clinton, yes. Yes. Oh, one of your favourite people, Thomas, and uh, she's currently writing a book on the role of uh, culture in foreign policy and international relations, titled "Culture on the Front Lines: 21st Century Diplomacy." Please give them a very warm welcome. Thomas, you argue that the Democrats are not the party that we think they are, that they're certainly not the party of the working classes, they're the party of over-educated professionals who are contemptuous of the working classes, and in some ways, you know, I read this book and think they had it coming. (laughs) Um, Tell us why. Why?
0: Why what they had it coming why they had it coming but first I want to say thank you all for showing up this is very nice of you what a beautiful city you have I've been walking all around this uh, this part of town it's just a gorgeous place on a beautiful day I really like your country Well you're-, <laughs> <laughs>
1: you're welcome but you know we have problems here with with people wanting problems? to come as well yeah come yeah. on
0: now <laughs> In this be- beautiful weather, it's like it's like Southern California without the earthquakes. <laughs> so the Democrats, so they, you know, they're, uh, uh, you know, as I travel the world and tell people about this, I discover that this is a problem that uh, that people are having, uh, you know, with with left parties all over the world. In our system in the United States, where it's basically it's a two party system, and it's essentially. Locked in, there's no chance of a, a third party unseating one of the major parties these days. In that system, the more left of our two parties, Democrats, was you know in its in its heyday, in the day when it was uh, you know the, the sort of foundation period, the golden age of the Democratic Party was closely identified with working class people. Uh, middle class people and organized labor and today it is a party that really identifies with a different group uh, with what they call professionals in America, white collar people with advanced degrees, and they've sort of developed over the years, and we'll I'll fill out all the details as we go along, but they've developed over the years a sort of ideology where they understand this class of people as being the sort of winners of history. You know, they stand at the end of the great dialectic, the creative class they call them, and the um, you know there's there's many consequences to this shift. You know, from being a party of, that cares about working class people to being a party that cares about winners, you know, to be a party that cares about the new economy winners. And one of these is that they have real trouble dealing with things like, well, when say Wall Street uh, contrives to defraud the entire world. Uh, They have, you know, someone like, say, Franklin Roosevelt. You all know who this is? Franklin Roosevelt, he was our president during World War II. When Wall Street acted in a similar way during the 1920s, he came down down on them like a ton of bricks, okay? Or you look at uh, uh, not all that long, this is actually Republicans in the 1980s when uh, Wall Street, uh, it wasn't really Wall Street, but regional banks had been doing, you know, a lot of real estate shenanigans. They got in a lot of trouble. A lot of people were prosecuted. This time around, uh, you know, Wall Street... Manages to throw the entire global economy off a cliff. You know, we elect Barack Obama in this great wave of hope and enthusiasm to do something about it, and he uh, basically lets these guys go, you know, gives them a nice bailout, and they're back to their, you know, their bonuses are back where they started, while the rest of the country, uh, you know, the recovery comes very, very slowly for them. So this is sort of how the, how the book starts, you know. How is, this, how is it possible that the party of the people, the party of the working class, the party that's supposed to care about the common man, uh, allows something like this to take place? You know, that does these extraordinary favors for the people at the top of the system while the people at the bottom are watching their way of life crumble before their eyes. And they are. I mean, this is, this is what's happening in America. And uh, Donald Trump, who I regard as a, you know, as a buffoon, and as a, a kind of genius imbecile, I guess. I, I don't know what the right word is for Donald Trump, uh, but this guy uh, you know, who, who seems so unfit for the job of the presidency managed to really uh, capture what I just described, managed to really uh, uh, talk about this to workers and, and middle-class people all over America in a sort of a way that's unprecedented for a Republican, Republicans, of course, being the traditional party of big business, uh, of the billionaire class. And that's, uh, in my mind, that's ultimately why he succeeded. There's a lot of other reasons, and there's a lot of complications, and there's a lot of screw-ups, and there's the FBI getting involved in in the campaign in a really crazy way. There's a million insane things that went on. I mean, it was a circus. But ultimately, the guy spoke to the great grievance of the American middle class. Now, I don't think he'll be able to do anything about it. I don't think he even really cares to do anything about it. But he did speak to it.
1: Cynthia, what's your take on this? And in regard to what Thomas has just said, the the, the one thing that I still can't understand in in that explanation is how. It, it can be Donald Trump, how somebody like him, can, uh, whose education is as elite as Bill Clinton's or Barack Obama's, um, who, who is so establishment in so many ways, can be the one to, to be the, the, the great hope and bearer of this message to impoverished America.
2: Um, Well, first, thank you so much for having me, and it's wonderful to be back in Australia, a country actually I know a whole lot better than the United States. I've been to so many of your beautiful (laughs) parks. I haven't been to any of ours. I love this country, (laughs) and uh, partially because of your fabulous sunshine. Um, But then I want to also give a shout-out to uh, Stephen Armstrong and Kate Bentovin, the organizers of the Asia Topa Festival, and if any of you have not been yet, you still have about two more weeks. You must go. You have here in the city really the most extraordinary, visionary, ambitious. Uh, arts festival I've ever seen or heard of. You have Asia in all of its aspects right here at the Arts Center. So I really encourage you to take advantage of this and I'm so grateful to Stephen for bringing me over to participate in the Water Futures Conference and to be able to go to all these fantastic Asia Topa events. So take advantage of it. Um, so lucky you um, to get to listen to me now, because I was actually here in May, and I, you know, pretty much predicted all of this with one just slight detail that I missed. Uh, and that is that I agree completely with what you've said, Thomas. And I did give a number of talks talking about the very real, Uh, economic grievances in the United States. I think the 2008 crisis didn't hit here nearly as badly, and it was really catastrophic in the United States. And I think for the last eight years, people have kept hearing, you know, it's a recovery, it's a recovery, but they don't feel it. You know, they don't feel it. And so I explained all that at great length. And then I went on to say, but Even so, there just are not enough angry white men to elect Donald Trump. So don't listen to anything I say, because I surely did
0: not
2: not call that one. I'd like to elaborate a little bit on the uh, more negative side of what you said, Thomas, and I completely agree with it. But I think there's another book that the Democrats have not read. And it's a book called The Political Brain. It's by actually a neuroscientist called Drew Weston. And in that book, and this is so intuitive, we all know it, but Drew did this based on actual scientific experiments. He demonstrates and proves that political decisions, big surprise, are driven by emotions. They they are not driven by a 10-piece policy plan. They are not driven by my Brookings policy papers, you know, read by three and a half people. Uh, They are driven by emotions, and Donald Trump totally gets that. And the emotions he played on are not our loftiest emotions. Uh, These people who were very much left behind, you know, have lost their, not only their sense of their future, but their sense of dignity. I know their sense of who they are in the world. And Donald Trump played on those emotions, saying, number one, I am going to destroy the people who did this to you, the high-up people who did this to you, and I'm also going to destroy the people who are coming into this country trying to destroy your way of life. So he played on these, this sense of insecurity and instability in a simply overtly racist way. Uh, And, you know, people in trouble very often are looking for someone beneath them. They want something to make them feel good about themselves. And so one of the most appalling things, and it's very hard to know what's at the top of the list, but one of the most appalling things Donald Trump has done is to create an open platform for racism and to make a kind of overt racism and xenophobia acceptable in a way that, I mean, it hasn't been in my lifetime. And this has fueled Action! There is a 197 percent increase in anti-Muslim acts. You know, actual persecution, people attacking people, and you know what he has unleashed. And this is part of everything. Even crazy things like that insane Sweden comment. Um, you know that their terrorists are taking Sweden apart. Um, which, of course, was based on some insane cable news thing that he saw It wasn't even true. And, of course, the poor Swedes had to say no. (laughs) But but in it is a kernel of truth that you had this, you know, blonde Scandinavian place that has opened its doors to refugees. And, you know, big surprise, that doesn't work out instantaneously. But we are not Sweden. We are a country of immigrants like you. This, that is our core identity. Uh, and Donald Trump is really trying to tear that apart in a very dangerous way.
1: There's a, a, a class that you describe, really. It's a political class of, of the left in America. Mm. Um, and you, in, in your book, go through... I mean, Clinton... It's like you've just run over him with a bulldozer. It's uh, it's um, it's a it's a really uh, bruising uh, critique to read of a a president that, of course, has the loftiest of of places in 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 more recent memory. You're a little bit. Do you think so? I think I think so.
0: Okay. Well, we'll uh, talk about that.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, certainly polls would say so. Who, who
0: polls? polls would well, we, we say so? We don't live there. So. Yeah.
1: And your, your, <laughs> and your polls are not to be trusted. I guess. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's the Chicago uh, in me. Yeah. Sorry. It's
0: a, yeah. Inside joke.
1: Uh, and uh, you say in the book that you you get you're you're a bit softer, I think, towards Hillary, but not really, um, and then Barack Obama, you, you apply the same sort of... My clone. former hero. Uh, well, yeah. Tell us um, about these threads. Of course, they're the leaders, but they're representing all the people that work around them, all, right. all the people that work for them, um, and, and about this class that, that seemed to be blinded in, I think the words you would use, self-righteousness.
0: Okay, that's a, that's a lot to, to to try to answer. You wrote it. Well, that's going to so, take all night. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Off you go. You've got to leave me some time to retrieve Bill Clinton, so don't take all night. <laughs> I think Bill it's, Clinton, it's, so, it's really important because it, it also has real resonance here. Is I that think. so? I think so, and we'll, we'll, we'll come to that.
0: Okay, so Bill Clinton was a Democrat, uh, you know, and at the time, was regarded as a great hero because uh, Democrats had been on a losing streak before he (laughs) ran for the presidency, and he got elected. It's a great success story. And, uh, you know, widely admired, and the economy did really well his last uh, three years in office. And so people look back at the days of Clinton's presidency as good times. And at the same time, you had uh, the Republican Party, you know, the party of the right in America, that uh, persecuted him in a way that was so manifestly unfair. I mean, they even impeached the guy for uh, you know having an affair with an intern. And um, so when, when people look back at him, they tend to be sympathetic. Uh, they remember the good times. Uh, they don't really think about what he did as president. And so I sort of revisited the Clinton presidency. And the way I did it was by reading uh, uh, books written by his admirers and his friends and... Uh, his cabinet members, uh, people who were close to him and who thought he really was you know, one of the greatest presidents we ever had. And Clinton had a lot of achievements as president, lots of little things, many of them that I think were pretty good. He had five big main achievements that his biographers uh, admire him for, and I'm gonna go down the list and tell you what they were. The first was the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, been negotiated by uh, Republicans, by the George Bush administration. Uh, the second one was mass incarceration of black people. They called it the Crime Bill of 1994. And uh, mass incarceration was, what I mean by that, do you, do you understand what I'm talking about when I say mass incarceration? We, we have an enormous prison population in the United States. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, I mean, second only to the Soviet Union or something like this in the old days. You know, it's, it's outrageous. And this was largely, um, uh, I mean, uh, Bill Clinton's uh, crime bill in 1994 was, uh, you know, he had a, a big hand in uh, accomplishing this. And in some ways it was deliberate, and I'll give you the details on that in a minute. The third thing he did that his admirers really think was awesome was to deregulate banks and deregulate telecom. The fourth thing was, um, mm, oh, what was it? Yeah, he abolished welfare, the welfare reform system. We, you know, we have a system in America going back to the 1930s to support, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 what is it? Women with, uh, with no husband and children. What is, come on. What a is
1: single it? mother.
0: A yeah, single mother. God, I'm losing my mind. It's the jet lag here. <laughs> Jesus H. Christ, that's gone now. And they turned it over to the states. It's been a disaster. And the fourth was he balanced the budget. I mean, sorry, the fifth was he balanced the budget. Now, this is the fascinating thing about all five of these um, accomplishments. Every single one of them is a Republican accomplishment. These were all Republican proposals. Every single one of them. And he got them done. The other really amazing coincidence is that every single one of them was, with the exception of balancing the budget, every single one of them ended in disaster. I mean huge, honking, flat-out disaster. NAFTA is the roadmap for deindustrialization. It ruined his friends in organized labor. I mean, and they complain about it all. Well, they fought him on it. They fought him very bitterly, and this is a year after he'd just been elected, and they'd given, they turned over their treasury to this guy, done everything they could to get him elected, and he, turned, he turns around and puts the knife right in their back <laughs> with this thing. Um, the uh, uh, what's what's the next one uh, what's uh, I've I've already forgotten my <laughs> well, own stupid list uh, you have- but uh, deregulation of banks obviously is what <laughs> Jesus Christ and he deregulated them not once not twice but many times in the course of his uh, of his presidency and this uh, you know obviously culminated in the you know uh, uh, the financial crisis of 2008 with many other minor scandals along the way deregulation of telecoms has led to monopolization I mean you, you see what I'm getting at here uh, abolishing Welfare turned out to be a terrible idea for if you care about poor people, if you care about working class people, it pulls the floor out from under wages, uh, and um, of course, mass incarceration is. I mean, this is this is like you know this is a this is a human rights violation. The only one that you can argue about, I think, is the balanced budget, and I mean you want me to say it? Say so, this was stupid too. He balanced the budget in the teeth of a recession. Like, why do that? Okay, it worked out for him for very complicated. He got lucky. So the question, for very complicated Thomas, reasons then is, but is,
1: is why? why? Why did he do these things? Well, yeah, and you know, in a more because we don't have all night, and we've got to move on from Bill. Uh, but but what what was going on at the heart of the party? Yeah, from so, that time through now, uh, that you end up with a Democratic Party that has seemingly lost its way, uh, yeah. and Donald Trump as president.
0: Well, Clinton was the... He represented... There had been a civil war in the Democratic Party up leading up to his presidency, all through the 70s, all through the 80s, these guys trying to figure out what to do with themselves. And this goes back to the Vietnam era. And basically, Democrats decided that they needed to walk away from organised labour, their sort of traditional... Uh, you know, social institution that they were identified with needed to walk away from these guys and identify instead with this, uh, the the professional class, the sort of winners in your new economy. And Bill Clinton was a strong believer in this approach. He even said that he, you know, he wasn't. Uh, a traditional Democrat, he was a new Democrat, he was charting a third way for left parties all over the world. Tony Blair, you know, agreed with him on this. This was one of their sort of great gifts to humanity. And the Democratic Party has really never looked back. They look at Bill Clinton and his philosophy as the road to success. And, uh, you know, that's one of the the, 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 the the sort of crushing ironies of the Hillary Clinton Campaign is that she's uh, she is the of course obviously as his wife is the inheritor of this strategy and this philosophy. This is the victory philosophy for the Democratic Party, uh, and it just crashed and burned.
2: I, I know you all didn't come here to talk about Bill Clinton, so I'm going to just be very, um, very quick. And um, you know you've researched this much more uh, deeply than I have, but I don't agree with what you said and. The, there are a lot of changes that have gone place uh, that taken on in our country, taken place in our country. Sorry, um, and one of them, and it's a very sad thing, is the incredible weakening of organized labor. Bill Clinton is not to blame for that. Uh, that has to do with state control of labor laws. And the, the, my husband works with organized labor, and I'm sorry to say, I know this personally because our family income is decreasing too. There simply are not that many organized workers anymore. And this is a gradual change that has taken place over the last 30 years. The welfare reform was about not about abolishing welfare and having people have no welfare. It was about enabling people to work and creating conditions, training, education, job placement that enable people, including single mothers, uh, to move out of a situation of generational unemployment. It did not solve all these problems. We still have these problems of generational unemployment. But it did change the lives positively for many, many people. I'm sure NAFTA is not the perfect treaty. And our current president believes that America can thrive alone. We're going to make America great again alone. And anyone who thinks that, you know, good luck. Uh, Mexico is a very important trading partner. Canada is the most important trading partner. It is the North American free trade agreement with those three countries. And anyone who thinks we can survive without those two countries, you know, uh, good luck. Uh, Bill Clinton was fueled by a belief in enabling people to achieve their potential. It was a positive vision that caught on, it had behind it, Uh, the idea of real economic growth and everybody coming along with the economic growth. He did indeed try to bring the Democrats more towards the middle. He understood uh, the political brain. He understood uh, the power of emotion in politics. And he understood how to reach people uh, by communicating stories, real stories, uh, that connected with them. Um, Hillary Clinton has the most positive motives in the world, she does not, you know, just inherently have that same facility with political connection. If you get her in a, a smaller group, and sometimes in larger groups, it works great, but it's not part of her DNA. It's very much part of Bill Clinton's DNA. But the biggest problem, I think, with with Hillary Clinton this year, who is certainly the most qualified candidate to run for president in a very long time, but the biggest problem is she was the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, When you are looking, and the Democrats were too, when you are looking... For you know someone out of the establishment, which you know Barack Obama kind of looked like, but in many ways, he was a disappointment to many people. Um, when you're looking for someone outside the establishment, it is not a good idea to nominate the most
1: establishment
2: politician.
1: What yeah. w- what worries each of you the most about? administration, about the Trump administration? Oh, God. But it's hard to know where to begin.
2: uh, (laughs) Um, I I would just begin by saying a couple of things. What what I mentioned, this open platform for racism and really fueling um, xenophobia and fueling the divisions that exist in our country. Um, I live in a bubble in Maryland. Maybe you've gotten out of it, but I kind of live in a bubble. I don't know a lot of Trump voters in the Maryland, Washington, D.C. area. We also have a place in Florida. I know a lot of Trump voters there. And and they are really nice people. I'll give you an example. A couple who spent their entire life in the public schools, a superintendent and a school counselor from Syracuse, New York, how can they support someone who has appointed someone with no experience in publication with the express purpose of destroying the Department of Public Education? The way they can do it is they live in a different world. They watch only Fox News. They do not see the same reality that people who don't watch Fox News nonstop um, see. And that that is very scary, that division, between the worlds we live in, the racism and xenophobia, anti anyone different, and then quite honestly, just the simple fact you use the word buffoon, I couldn't agree with you more, that you have someone who is completely uninformed. I mean, I just can't emphasize this enough how uninformed he is, with no desire to improve that situation, not a scintilla of curiosity. Uh, and you know he's in charge now they're you know minding him and apparently his minders try to appease him by giving him positive news stories about him that helps him tweet less <laughs> and they try to limit i am not kidding they try to limit the hours he spends in front of television Do any of you have children you try to limit <laughs> the amount of hours well this is what this is where we are so you know the just the lack of Knowledge and experience and desire to gain it is really terrifying. Uh,
0: The the thing that scared scared me the most at first was um, foreign policy that the guy that the guy would would somehow get us entangled in a war or that he would he would screw up our relationship because he knows so little about it. Uh, But I think that I mean that fear is sort of um, uh, is going away because he has appointed some people that know what they're doing. The, the, the larger fear is <clears throat> you've got a Republican Congress, okay? You've got people that know what they want to do, and he's going to sign their legislation. Uh, these are people who have been around for a long time. They know how government works, and they know how to take the sledgehammer to the sort of you know, central supports of the, what is left of the welfare state in America, and they're going to do it. Thirdly is the Supreme Court, and I still can't believe that the Republican sort of gambit of not, you know, of of ignoring Barack Obama's Supreme Court uh, pick for an entire year in hopes that they would win the election and then get their own guy, and that that actually worked. It worked, and he's going to do it. Well, he has done it. He has named, you know, he's chosen his own, uh, you know, nominee for the Supreme Court, and they have got a whole bunch of awesome things that they are going to get ready to do, and one of them involves further destroying organized labor. And if I could use that as a segue to go back to the labor is uh, like you, this is an issue that I write about all the time, you know, and I cover strikes and stuff like that in America. And uh, organized labor is on its way down in the United States. And this is very important to understand. This is not because people don't want to join a union. Mm -hmm. It's because if you try to form a union in your workplace in America, you'll be fired. Okay, immediately. The boss will find out who the ringleader is and he'll fire your ass. Okay, that's against the law in the United States. It's against the law in a lot of places. But in America, we don't enforce that law. All right, now for years, the labor movement has pleaded with Democratic politicians to do something about this, to put teeth into this law. You know, this law that we've had since the 1930s to make it possible to form a union again in America. And every time Democratic politicians come into office, by the way, this goes back to Carter, first Carter, then Clinton, then Obama, uh, and Labor, which has backed them to the hilt and done everything to get them elected, says, look, here's our one our one thing, here's our one demand, our one piece of legislation. With Obama, it was called card check. Okay, the idea was it would make it easier to form a union. And, and the president's like, sorry, you know, I'm busy. I got other things to worry about. See ya. Again and again and again, these guys get betrayed by the politicians that they put into office. And what, Trump is going to, what Trump's Supreme Court is going to do is basically the only part of, of uh, the labor movement that's still growing in America is in the uh, public sector, people that work for the government. Exactly. And this is in front of the bulldozer now. They've got that sucker revved up, and they are, the Supreme Court is going to make that essentially impossible. And when they do that, the labor movement in America is going to be in huge trouble. Now, why does any of this matter? Because when we talk about inequality and about the way that the American middle class is falling apart, this is one of the big reasons for it, that essentially workers don't have a voice anymore. They aren't able to come together. They aren't able to do the things that they're able to do in nearly every other Western country.
1: Isn't it true, though, uh, that the labor movement on the whole backed Hillary Clinton when Bernie Sanders was yeah. really speaking their language. I mean, they've got a responsibility. You no, know, they, they've got.
0: They've got. They've got all, they make a lot of, str- of strategic and tactical blunders. That is true. But That's they thought they thought they were win. backing the winners. What they yeah. thought they were doing. Now, the rank and file. You know, the the actual some uh, of the, so the um, leadership of the labor movement was behind Hillary 100. percent But the rank and file, a lot of them went for Trump this time because of Trump's. This is where the trade agreement stuff becomes very important. Uh, you know, I. I was uh, watching Trump speeches on YouTube. There's a lot of people that do this. They sit around and watch Trump speeches on YouTube. I'm one of these people, and uh, this is back uh, about and you're a year.
2: he's still smiling. That's yeah, funny. yeah.
0: No, no. I mean, it's all a big. It's all uh, you know. The only way to the only way to 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 live with this stuff is to laugh at it. Believe me, folks. But uh, God, I sound like him now. <laughs> sad. <Bad>. Sad. <laughs> Believe me, folks. Anyhow, so I'm, I'm watching a whole. I'm watching a whole bunch of Trump rallies. This is about a year ago, and he, you know, he wanders. He he has these enormous rallies. Like thirty thousand people come to them. And he's, uh, he wanders all over the place. His mind wanders. It's like a Facebook feed, you know? It's like, I'm talking about this now. I'm talking about that now, you know? And, and it's totally unconnected. Here he's... I know, like, except it's, about him. it's, it's all, all, all about him. Always he's at the center, of course. But he says the, the sort of the, the, the bigotry stuff, you know, the fear of aliens. But he, oh, he keeps coming back to one issue, which is trade. And he keeps coming back to the idea that we have lousy, that we've had lousy trade deals and that these lousy trade deals have in some way brought about the deindustrialization of the United States. He's right. Now, you scratch the surface and the dude doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, you ask him about any of the details of this. He doesn't know anything about it. But this is, you know, the, the people in organized labor have been hearing this for years. And if they're not he- hearing it from their leadership, they're hearing it from the boss. You know, the guy who says, if you strike, if you so much as file a grievance, or they say to the city government, if you raise our taxes, we're moving to Mexico. Or we're moving, we're moving to somewhere else. You know, we're moving to Arkansas or whatever it is. You know, but we're getting out of this place. And we, we can do it because the government lets us do it. These trade agreements that Trump is, is yelling about were written expressly for that purpose. They're not really free trade agreements. They're, they're, they're trade deals designed to protect American investment overseas. That's what NAFTA was, anyway. I mean, they're, it's complicated. But that's what Trump is talking about, and this struck a chord for these people. Uh, and, you know, they look at Hillary. By the way, Hillary was saying the same thing. Hillary was trying her best. You know, I'm there too, she would say. I'm against the TPP. You know, the, you know what the TPP was because, of course, you're part of it. I'm against NAFTA, too. I'm against the TPP, too, she would say. But no one believed her. Why did no one believe her? First of all, because her husband was the man that got NAFTA done. And second of all, and this is, you talk, when you talk about, when we talk about the blunders that, that handed the White House to Donald Trump, here's Barack Obama. While all this is going on, while Trump is out there yelling about the TPP, here's Obama trying to get it done. And here's poor Hillary saying, "I'm against it too." <laughs> you know, I know I said I was in favor of it a couple years ago, but now I'm against it. Please believe me. And here's Obama saying, "No, no, we got to get this thing passed through Congress." It's like, why? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they... well, he just thought he thought they thought Trump had no chance. They thought there's no way this guy can win. So we can do whatever we want. And he wound up uh,
1: sabotaging her. How? Uh... Strong. Oh, sorry, did you want to?
2: Well, I'm just going to say there is also another a very important element which Trump never mentions, um, and, and, and that is the transformation of the workplace through automation. So, yes, companies move, but the companies that stay also employ a fraction of the people. And the jobs, are, they are not coming back. You can build walls. You can build whatever you want. You know, manufacturing, as, as it was known in the Midwest, is not coming back. There are new job opportunities. They require training. For new workplaces, they require particularly training in programming and things like that, and and some philanthropists or you know people who've made their fortune in manufacturing are starting to do this, starting to provide training programs for people who used to work in steel plants, used to work in manufacturing, used to work in coal plants. And what is so heartbreaking about Donald Trump is you know he is pretending to care for these people, and he's pretending, you know, that if he rants and raves about foreigners enough, and, you know, God knows who from Mexico enough, that's somehow going to make these people's lives better. No, it is not. You know, they do need help, and they do need help from the government. That is the government's role. And there should be, in fact, a massive training and re-education. And you don't hear a whisper about
0: that. Mm, so this is something I disagree on. I think that Trump actually can bring a lot of those jobs back. You make it a little bit harder to close the steel mill, the steel mill is not going to move to, you know, make it a little bit harder to move that overseas. It's not going to move overseas. It's very simple. By the way, about um, uh, automation, the, the economist term for this is productivity. Uh, productivity growth in America is very slow right now. I mean, it's, it's it's really hot with your iPhone, right? We're constantly inventing new crap on the iPhone, new apps. But in every other field, it's slowed to a crawl. Now here's the interesting thing. Once upon a time, America had incredible productivity growth after World War II up to the 1970s, the golden age of you know, the um, American I don't want to say American capitalism because it was, a, it, was a very, you know, it was a very different sort of system. We had incredible productivity growth back then, but here's the crazy thing. Workers prospered. When you have productivity growth, workers are by definition, back then by the definition of the 60s and the 50s and the 70s, workers do well. Today, productivity slows to a crawl, and we say, oh, there's all of this you know, productivity growth, and you guys just can't participate in it anymore. Now, why do we do that? I think a lot of it is because we're. I mean, I think the way wages are structured is uh, uh, is a political thing. That workers, the real reason that workers aren't prospering these days is because they don't have power any longer, because management has every weapon and workers have nothing. You know, even their own political party won't stand up for them anymore. You know, management can, you know, all of these threats, all of this kind of stuff. One of my friends, uh, the economist Dean Baker, you might know him, in D.C. Dean Baker is forever pointing out that we have this, in America nowadays, thanks to these trade agreements that Trump hates and that I think he's right to hate, uh, it's the one thing that I think he's right about. But he isn't really right about it. We'll talk about that later. But the,
1: <laughs> we won't because the, we, we're fast running out of time.
0: Oh, is that right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, we have an enormous trade deficit in the united states and it's almost entirely has to do with manufacturing if you fix that deficit if you do something to fix that deficit whatever it is renegotiate the trade deals you know fiddle with the currency whatever it is by definition manufacturing would return to the United States. That's what... The, I mean, we, the manufacturing manufacturing went away. That's the trade deficit. You bring it back, the trade deficit goes away. We've talked about undoing the trade deficit for decades. When you do that, you're going to have more manufacturing jobs in America by definition. It's just it's just math.
1: I want to ask you about the Republican Party and how you think it's going to hold up to Trump because I, I can't really read it. I, I How strong it is... Um, I know George W. Bush gave an interview, I think overnight, where he really had a bit of a slap at uh, Trump about his relationship with the media and produced what I think is just the quote of possibly Mm. the year so far. He said... uh, we need the media to hold people like me to account. Wow, good for oh, George yeah. Bush said that? George W. Bush oh, said oh, what a this. What He was giving an interview because he's releasing a new book of his paintings. <laughs> oh, so he's being very productive. He's had plenty of time to reflect, and he did a big truth thing by saying that. Uh, and obviously, uh, the Republican Party are not uh, an entirely happy Solid family at the moment, but they seem pretty pleased with all the power they've got. How do you think that's going to play out? There's a wonderful, um, I don't
2: know, it was a tweet or cartoon or something which said that uh, Mitch McConnell, who's the head of uh, the Senate, the lead Republican in the Senate, and Paul Ryan, the lead Republican in the House of Representatives in the Congress, were um, medical miracles because they were able to stand upright without spines. <laughs> and um, I think that pretty much, you know, sums up the Republican party, you know, big surprise. they love power, big surprise. They'll sell their souls uh, to have it. You know the, the Mitch McConnell, this is the guy who said after President Obama was elected, and honestly, You know, in hindsight, President Obama is way too nice. And the Democrats were way too weak. How lame. They were just pathetic. They did not hold these people to account. I mean, Mitch McConnell said after President Obama was elected, the whole world loves him. Which, by the way, President Obama didn't really make anything out of that either in the first few years. But still, the whole world loves him. And this man, you know, a senator, says, well, the only thing I care about in the next eight years is stopping everything President Obama tries to do. I mean, excuse me, are we not part of the same country? You know, it is just unbelievable, and they were allowed to do that. But, you know, now they're standing straight without, without spines. And they will, she says bitterly, pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I really think they will, um, because they, there's no coming back from this. Uh, and well look what happened to Chris Christie, you know, I mean Donald Trump also will just cut That was the governor from New Jersey who I heard the other day is at a 19% approval rating. (laughs) Um, You know who totally sucked. He was once popular. He sucked up to Trump. He did anything. If you want to see, I I have a great image. Was when Donald Trump won the the Republican nomination and he was hugging Chris Christie on stage. Who you notice is nowhere now. He dropped him like a lead balloon. But he's hugging him on the stage, and there is Chris Christie's wife. And man, does she look miserable! I, um, I would also take a look at um, the Supreme Court nominee's wife when uh, Trump m- m- presented him, Neil Gorsuch. Take a look at her; she's dying yeah. inside too. But she's there. She's there. Um, so I, you know, the Republicans are in power. They're craven, um, but they are also imploding and having a major identity crisis and. I think they'll seriously suffer after this. I want to turn over to you in one second. I just want to shift for one second back to foreign policy. Um because I think right today and I didn't get a chance to see it because I was running all, around all day. But Donald Trump went to the Congress and was gonna give an address It was gonna last an hour. God knows. He's probably talking about the crowd at the inauguration again, but <laughs> yeah. somehow I was gonna showing pictures. So, you know, this is my crowd, the really big, really huge. <laughs> um, but anyway, somehow he's gonna talk for an hour. And his point was we need a massive military buildup. You know, <laughs> what is it with these men who have never served in the military Uh, you know george w bush donald rumsfeld dick cheney paul wolfowitz the people who brought you the iraq war you know who have never served in the military for them like donald trump the military is the answer so we want to make america great again we're going to boost the military yet when did we last win a war how's that working
0: yeah. No, and, 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 he, and luckily. He, talks about, about he wants to get in a nuclear arms race. Have you oh, heard this? Well, it's like, with whom?
2: Well, with his friend, probably he's <laughs> going to talk about it behind with Putin. But, um, but luckily, as you mentioned earlier, luckily we have some good appointments. And of course, the great military leaders, and General Mattis appears to be quite a good leader, our Secretary of Defense, uh, they understand the limits of military power. And they understand what military power can't do. And I will tell you what military power can't do, which Donald Trump is very busy eroding by the minute. Um, military power can't give you leadership. In today's world, you know, leadership comes from setting an example. That's what soft power is. Being a country, a leader that people admire and want to emulate. That's what gives you power over people. You can't force yourself anymore because in this 24-7 news cycle, communication, social media, citizen journalism, everyone is held accountable. You didn't, have to walk the walk. didn't the
1: work walk. for Obama, though. I mean, you couldn't have a model of more of what you've just described, and it's been a failure. Well, he didn't do all the things he said he didn't do most of the things that uh, but but most most of all trump is the gift
0: yeah the legacy well
2: correct but that is exactly my point president obama gave fabulous speeches you know look at his cairo speech that was a great Mm. speech he followed it up with exactly nothing Mm. And so the United States is now in lower esteem in the Arab world than it was under George W. Bush. So that is my point. You can't just talk. You have to walk the walk. You have to model the behavior. So we tell people all over the world about the importance of the freedom of the press and how you have to allow the press to criticize you. And now our press outlets are kept out of the White House. Who can we talk to about that now? You can't say a word.
0: Can I, can I, this, so this is—I I think I, I, there's uh, something else that he's doing with the military buildup, which is it's um, backdoor Keynesianism. The Republicans have—you know—they they always object oh, to deficit probably. spending, but well, you remember Reagan, right? So well, massive how about military buildup, two, yeah. two, yeah. right, right. two wars exactly. off the But books. but, but uh, Iraq—that was some of the dumbest Keynesianism ever. You know, they spent it all on these military contractors. By the way, Washington D.C. was well,
2: good for Cheney and
0: Rumsfeld, yeah, and for my neighbors. So, so I live in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, okay, suburb of Washington, D.C. And if you all have ever been there, it's, a very, it's the richest city in America now. Why is it so rich? One of the reasons is because we've contracted out government to all of these private... Uh, corporations. And uh, we've contracted out, we basically contracted out the Iraq war. And so uh, uh, Bush dumped all of this money on these contractors, and they all built these fabulous McMansions all over, <laughs> all over Washington, D.C. But uh, uh, Reagan looks, I'm sorry, Trump looks back to Reagan and sees you know, the massive military buildup of those years. And Trump understands one thing, uh, maybe Trump doesn't understand it, but somebody, somebody close to him is whispering in his ear who does get it, which is the way that you get reelected in America it doesn't have anything to do with, uh, with you know, all of the stuff that uh, that we're talking about. It's by getting by what Bill Clinton did: full employment. If you get full employment, you'll have real wage growth, and you will get reelected. If he dumps enough public money, if he spends enough public money on the military or on um, infrastructure, infrastructure, whatever else he's been planning to, he will get reelected. He will get full employment, and, and he'll get reelected. Now ab- about the Republicans, I re- I often think of a remark. That uh, Grover Norquist, y'all don't know Grover Norquist. He's a wonderful person. Actually, maybe he'll move down here. But they, they, they said to, uh, you know, they were talking about um, Mitt Romney. And uh, Romney was running for president. And somebody said to, to Grover, you know, he's not really, uh, he's, not, he's not a real conservative. You know, he's a squish or whatever the term is that they use. And Grover said, well, can he move his hand? Because that's all they need. They just need someone to sign their legislation. Mm. And Trump can move his hand, folks. Mm. Now, I want to say something nice yeah. about Trump before we, before we, you know, as we smack this piñata around. <laughs> uh, so, I want to say something nice about Trump. Which is, this man smashed the establishment wing of both parties in my country. He comes out of nowhere, has no political experience at all, and destroys the careers of all of these Republicans. Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz. I was at the Republican convention when they booed Ted Cruz off the stage. It was, it was the most beautiful thing. <laughs> it was fantastic. And here comes Trump doing his you know, professional wrestle wrestling, he, this, this scowl, you know, he walks into the... Anyhow. He destroyed the establishment wing of both parties and he ended two political dynasties, the Bushes and the Clintons. You've got you got to you know, thank the man for that. OK, but that's all over now. Now we, now we can go back to cursing him. OK. <laughs> um,
1: if you would like to ask a question, put your hand up and uh, start talking if a microphone's put in it. Yeah. Um, one of the uh,
3: supporters of the Re- Republicans traditionally has been the Koch brothers, They seem to have been, as far as I can tell from here, fairly quiet in the lead-up to the election. That may be a wrong perception, but can you tell us what's happening with them and what they did during the election and and where they're going now?
0: Yeah, they're they're, um, fellow Kansans. I'm from from Kansas, so are they. Um, They didn't like Trump. Uh, A lot of traditional uh, sort of free-market Republicans didn't like Trump because of the trade issue that I mentioned. I mean, the Republicans have always been the party of... uh, Markets, free markets, free trade, or at least in my lifetime. And here's this guy you know, bad mouthing this stuff. No, they don't like him. They, uh, in fact, most traditional Republican donors didn't like the guy. Uh, uh, fascinating fact, I think one of the most uh, compelling facts of this last election Hillary outraised uh, and outspent Trump two to one. The uh, you know Wall Street people were behind her. a lot of the traditional Republican donors came together around Hillary. She was running a sort of campaign of national unity. I was at the Democratic convention as well and she had Republican after Republican up on the stage talking endorsing her. Uh, it was ex- extraordinary and uh, you know the all these traditional uh, conservative uh, people despise Trump I mean Jesus Christ. Um, uh, 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 you know, Romney himself denounced the guy. Uh, uh, you know, I read the Washington Post every day, George Before Will.
2: sucked up to him.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, they've all, they've all changed now. They're all, they're all like, ooh, ooh, you know, back, pedal, back, pedal, back, pedal, back. But the, uh, George Will, our most famous conservative columnist, hates the man, absolutely. It calls him a liberal. Uh, but they... <laughs> I know, I know, it's hilarious. But, uh, yeah.
3: This might be a bit obscure, in which case, jump it. But I was very struck reading uh, Listen, Liberal to your assault on education, on tertiary education. And having been um, involved in that area for a long time, myself, I've been brought up. The future lies with education. If only we can educate people more. And uh, I would suppose I'm what um, Jonathan Haidt calls a, a, a weird, uh, Western, educated, industrial, I've forgotten the rest of the term. <laughs> but I wondered, both of you, uh, what do you see as what is happening to, ter- to tertiary education and the impact of that? on on the body politic. Because it does seem to me that there is, certainly here, a huge commercialization of of tertiary education, a shedding of all sorts of traditional values about what a real education means. Uh Now, is that, and and that seemed to me much uh, part of what uh, Listen Liberal was saying at the early part of the book. Uh, I wondered where both of you might see the future of education and its implication for the Western world in general, but America in particular, and its political implications
0: Short and longer term, mm.
3: short and medium. Wow, term.
0: that's a, it's a this is a subject I write about a lot, uh, and it's really where this, this one of the one of the sort of sources of this book. So I got a PhD uh, in history years ago, and by the way, um, the school that I went to, I went to the University of Chicago. This is in the 80s and the 90s to get that PhD. You know what it costs to go there today? a year, American. So, four years of that as an undergrad, that's north of a quarter of a million dollars. Okay? Nobody has that kind of money. Now, I know they give lots of kids discounts and stuff like that, but that price tag alone, that's the source, that's the beginning of the problem. The second part of the problem is that students have to borrow to get that. Um, you know, to, 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 to pay that kind of money. And I know, you know, plenty of kids starting out in life who are $100,000 in debt, and they can't discharge that in bankruptcy because of the law in our country. They, they're, they're stuck with that. They've got that millstone around their neck, and they can't get free of it. The third thing I want to mention is uh, what happened to people like me who got those PhDs. And I wrote history, right? My first book was an academic. Yeah, it doesn't matter anymore. I got out onto the job market in 1994 and discovered there were no more, or very, very few uh, tenure-track history jobs, and that instead, we were all supposed to work as what's called adjuncts. Do you have that here? So as the university is... You understand what I'm getting at here. This is the corporatization of the university. So as they're able to charge these unrestrained amounts, and and they increase much faster than the rate of inflation, Every year, this is the private universities. The state use, they're running a little bit behind. As they're doing this, they're also casualizing the faculty. Okay, now this wasn't. This is before the internet, so it wasn't the internet that did this to us. It wasn't, uh, um, you know, automation or productivity or any of those things, um, you know, which have have done such damage to say musicians or taxi drivers or something like that. This was, this was just uh, you know, labor, uh, sort of uh, labor management uh, strategy that these, uh, that these universities engaged in. And my generation of PhDs basically were stuck with this. That was their future, was working for it. And you wanna know what, how much I got paid for teaching college courses? $1,500 a semester. That's 1500 The students are paying these incredible amounts. And uh, adjuncts to this day get paid just a little bit more than that now. If you want to work as in higher education, go out and get a PhD, which takes, as you m- must know, many, many, many years to accomplish. Uh, and then you, you, know, you work at one of these jobs. You have to put together three or four of them and drive around the city frantic. It's, it's anyhow, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a shitty way of life. It's a terrible way of life. Well, now, we should when...
1: ask Cynthia here, because she's in it.
0: Oh, I know. One last point, and then and then Cindy's going to tell us. So I live in the heart of what I call, and listen, liberal, the, lib- the liberal class. The liberal class, which is a term that I, for- I forget where I got it from, but it's uh, th- a term that I use to describe the professional managerial class, and I live in the heart of it in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, where I, was, I think something like 50% of the population has PhDs. And the kids are so incredibly achievement conscious. They all carry around in their heads the the hierarchy of American universities. Okay, They know which ones are better than which other ones. I have a, a friend, um, his, his son, the boy was, I don't know, eight, and he said, Daddy, is Williams above Princeton or is Princeton above Williams? You see what I'm getting at? this incredible social status of these things. I mean, they command this incredible cultural, you know, uh, uh, well, status. And that is reflected in the Democratic Party, where the the, the Democratic Party, like, uh, I mean, I don't want to really wail on the Democrats here because it's a reflection of the... um, Professional of the sociology of the professional class. By the way, the book is not an anti-intellectual book by any means. I, you know, I, I to write *Listen Liberal*, I had to do a whole lot of reading in academic literature, the literature of the, you know, the sociology of professionalism. Sorry, I talk too much, folks. Cynthia, Sorry
1: um, please. Just really yeah.
2: quickly from another
1: No, camp. don't rush it, because oh, you are then. in Georgetown University, um, so I think you're well-placed to respond to that.
2: Well, I've, I've spent my life in um, university and have another you know, PhD in, in art history, which, of course, qualifies me to speak on all these political subjects. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll evaluate your paintings after this. But, um, the, but I, I, looking more broadly... You know, people who are getting jobs today—I don't know exactly if it's the same here. I have two kids in their 20s; they're going to work in multiple different careers their lives, uh, throughout their lives. Most of them, many of them, don't want to work for companies anymore. They're going to work on their own, starting their own businesses. One of the dangers of the increasing, you know, sort of professionalizations of education is the diminution of my area of the humanities. And you hear, you know, parents saying, oh, no, no, you can't get an English degree or a history degree. You know, you have to get a business degree. Don't ever let your children get an undergraduate business degree. Certainly not if they're in America. That is a dead end. And what we're beginning to see is, you know, how do you make money? You make money by thinking. And what do the humanities do? They teach you to think critically. Now, to have a job, most people are going to have to get another degree after undergraduate. The really good news about that is it frees up undergraduate. You can't get a job from your undergraduate education. So learn to think. Do what you love. And going to a job interview and talking about something you are passionate about Uh, and know about is much more likely to get you your first job than being able, you know, if you love accounting, then become an accountant and talk about that. But it frees you up. Now, for the graduate degrees in the area that I went, in art history, which, thank you, my husband paid for, um, now at uh, most universities, they take many fewer people, recognizing the challenges of getting a job, and it's free. They've raised the money so you don't pay for it, because they know when you come out with a humanities PhD, you can't pay that back. So it's definitely an imperfect system, but there is some adjustment. Where the United States, I think, is way behind and needs to improve dramatically is in vocational education. We just sort of let that go. Uh, And, you know, I'm not in favor of just tracking people. I think, you know, people should be able to choose what kind of education they want. But we don't have much in the way of an alternative to an academic education. And that's something we really have to improve.
0: And that's where we left this discussion with Cynthia P. Schneider and Thomas Frank. Sally Warhaft will be back with The Fifth Estate in two weeks for a conversation about marriage equality in Australia with Tim Wilson and Terry Butler, both very much involved in the debate and each with a rather different point of view. Until then, subscribe to the series and find more Fifth Estate episodes, including videos, at wheelercentre.com.